comes back to the very first thing that we talked about, which is the role of investor relations is to align market value with intrinsic value. If you overhype this, if you try to maximize the share price, it will come back to you likely in the form of a missed quarter because at some point you will miss your volume or your, your revenue or some sort of top line estimate. From McKinsey and Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Werner Rehm, a partner in our New Jersey office, providing a nice introduction to the theme of today's podcast, maximizing the impact of your investor relations. We have a larger than usual group, so let me jump quickly into the introductions. First, Werner leads our Center for Financial and Capital Markets, M&A, Valuation, and Financial Analytics. He also co-leads our work in investor relations and investor communications. Werner, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. And joining Werner is Jay Gelb, a partner in our New York office. Jay co-leads our work in investor relations and communications, and he also leads our M&A work in our North America insurance practice. Jay, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. And David Honigman is a senior expert in our London office. He specializes in organizational and interpersonal communications. David, welcome. Glad to be here. And last but definitely not least, Carl Mahler is a senior advisor to McKinsey. He's based in Zurich and brings over 30 years of experience as a healthcare executive, spanning a spectrum of functions in finance and business, including head of investor relations at Hoffman LaRoche. Carl, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Okay, let's start with you, Werner. Is there anything that makes investor relations a particularly important topic right now? And how are you framing it for the clients that you work with? We find more and more, especially coming out of the uh, COVID crisis, that companies need to really articulate their long-term strategy and trying to figure out how to uh, educate investors around what creates value in, in times of long-term uncertainty like ESG and short-term uncertainty like the current uh, inflation environment. So we found it helpful to start with uh, uh, some sort of basic principles, if you want, core beliefs on, on how we are thinking about this. And and you might or might not agree with those, but uh, more likely than not, we suspect that these resonate, right? For example, that the goal of investor relations is to align the share price with the value of the company, the intrinsic value if you want, right? It's not helpful to be below that, obviously, but it's also not helpful to be above that because at some point the share price will come down again to intrinsic value, what you should be worth, and, and that's not a good time for anybody because it happens often over very short times. Um, then it's also important to think about which investors to talk to. You, you, you won't be able to please all investors. You will always have long-term investors. You will always have momentum players. So we think that focusing the, the efforts, if you want, in the story and the messages on the long-term intrinsic investors that invest in the long-term strategy is most important in that conversation. And I always like to frame it in the sense of these are the owners of the company. Investors are such a neutral name. These are really the owners of the company. And they kind of deserve not only an honest assessment of financial and operating performance, but also, you know, owning up to bad news, sharing what management has learned to that 
Um, we also think that content dominates style. Um, in the time of, of, of Zoom and, and even before that, we found that some uh, companies got into basically making a show out of Investor Day rather than uh, an educational session about how and why the company makes money, how you have a deep understanding of the competitive dynamics, uh, the product markets, the long-term developments, things like how does ESG really influence your customer behavior, things like that. And then lastly, what, what's internal is also external. What's external is read by employees. So consistency around all these groups is important. And we've seen some uh, stresses, so let's put it that way, if that's not the case in, in both ways. Thanks, Warner. And you, you mentioned intrinsic investors. Are these basically just long-term investors or is there any difference? And Jay, maybe you could define that for us. So as any investor relations professional knows, there are different type of in institutional investors that range from index funds to traders, as well as what we also describe as intrinsic investors. And while it's not always the easiest path to pursue, we recommend that companies focus their IR efforts on the intrinsic investors. And, and that's for a few reasons. Intrinsic investors undertake a rigorous due diligence of a company's ability to create its long-term value. These intrinsic investors also tend to build their portfolios from scratch without taking any cue from the benchmarks in terms of weighting. They also care deeply about the company's underlying performance rather than on quarterly results and any noise in the marketplace. And oftentimes they'll view pullbacks in a share price, perhaps if a, if a company didn't didn't meet uh, sell-side expectations as an opportunity to add to positions. And finally, this group of investors is unlikely to trade in and out of your stock. So the intrinsic investors will be the support base for your company over the long term. And looked at another way, your company's executive leadership team will probably have a, be much more open to, to meeting with the intrinsic investors as opposed to the mechanics focus or, or perhaps the trade. Got it. So thank you, Jay. It sounds like intrinsic investors sound great, but how do you actually identify them then? Yeah. So the characteristics of, of intrinsic investors are tend to be long-term, long only. At the same time, there, there can be long-short investors that also fit this criteria. The, these are the investors that, through the investor relations team, will get to know the company over time. Um, they show strong interest. They care about the long term, uh, much less on on quarterly results or guidance or, or elements like that. Yeah, I can add to that. Uh, I would encourage everybody who doesn't know about this, the concept of active share of a fund. And so there are ways to segment investors about who holds for the longer term on average, who has a high active share on average and so on. And quite frankly, the, the most IR experts, I mean, Carl, if I can put you on the spot, I, I suspect when, when you were at Roche, you, you knew who you were sort of long-term holders in pharmaceutical industry where. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for the, for the question. No, I mean, if you, maybe a large company is also a bit different to the smaller companies, I have to say. I mean, when you have a large company like Roche and we had in the end, uh, 320 billion market cap billions, so we were basically number two in Europe. Uh, the investors you had uh, in the company were basically investing six, seven, eight, nine billion, and those people cannot just simply go into a stock and out of the stock because they immediately would uh, move uh, too much uh, of, of volume. 
So what we did in a regular base, we looked at the top 10, top 15 shareholding. Um, we kept regular contact to them. And uh, uh, we looked at the changes and basically this were the intrinsic uh, investors which you talk about, where you have a, a regular contact to. Um, of course, we did also surveys to find new investors. But in principle, uh, if you look at your shareholding, you land there automatically. Thanks so much, Carl. And Jay, I know you also recently conducted a survey of intrinsic investors. What did the survey results tell you about what drives intrinsic investment decisions? These, these intrinsics are focused mostly on company specifics rather than on industry conditions. So for example, your company's, this would be your company's sustainable competitive advantages, your margin profile, and whether the company is an efficient allocator of capital. The investors that matter the most really want to understand your strategy. Another key point, again, is that intrinsic investors are focused on long-term value creation rather than short-term trends, which can be noisy, both for the company as, as well as for the industry. We also surveyed a group of intrinsic investors on what factors they view as most important when considering investing in a company. And keep in mind, intrinsic investors can often, for larger cap companies, can invest on the order of a billion dollars for, for a single company. So they'll be significant in terms of the shareholder register. It'll probably be refreshing for investor relations leaders to see that these long-term focus investors, the intrinsics, want companies to take risks that will generate attractive returns. And they also care significantly about management delivering on their objectives. Meanwhile, a small percentage of intrinsic investors see companies with low earnings volatility or a track record of exceeding consensus estimates because it doesn't necessarily translate into, in, into enhancing shareholder value. And oftentimes we find uh, it does not. There are plenty of, of larger and smaller companies that have volatile earnings, but have a, have a phenomenal track record of generating value over time. And that's ultimately what gets reflected in the company's valuation. Interesting. So what do you think is the best way for companies to engage with these intrinsic investors? We find that effectively engaging with intrinsic investors means treating them like sophisticated thought partners. These investors often have impactful insights based on what they've learned from other successful companies that can be applied to your situations. And I, I saw this many times uh, during my career, my prior career as an equity analyst. When companies are engaging with intrinsic investors, it's important to, to be specific, to maintain, to maintain transparency and also establish and maintain your credibility. That's a critical point. Examples of this would include showing specific ways that your company is creating value, also about being open to both your successes and your failures. And in addition to that, demonstrating your deep knowledge of the company and industry. And then finally, being clear that you won't invest in projects or M&A with low payoff potential. Yeah, building, building on what, what Jay said, it is critical to, to see these as really thought partners, these investors. For example, we find often we get questions about how can I convince my investors that I'm a growth company from companies where you can see just from the profile that they are not. And that just sort of, you know, it, it immediately not only is not going to work, but it also makes you less credible. 
right? So, um, you know, con- you know, the conversation about what you are, how you create value, what you should own, etc., is just incredibly important for the for the credibility point. Thank you, Jay and Warner. Carl, I'm curious how this point about management credibility resonates with you. How did you and your colleagues at Roche establish that credibility with investors? Yeah, I have to say, I mean, in the end, um, uh, the management has to convince uh, the investor market that they do the right thing. Because in the end, it's all about management credibility because uh, the investor wants to know if the management is able and capable to do uh, the money which they get uh, in the most appropriate way. And uh, so the credibility in the end is for me uh, the minimum, let's say, as important as the product which you sell because the market um, wants to know if the person can use the money in the best way. And that must not necessarily be that you are completely polished, I have to say, as a manager. This is really not necessary. What the market, this is at, my, at least my experience, what the market want to know is, is that if the, if the manager is authentic, is transparent, is clear about also his shortcomings, because, I mean, sometimes you simply don't know what the future will bring. And the worst is if there are managers who try to say, I know exactly everything and I know exactly what the company will be and I know exactly what the environment will be. So we all have the limitations to manage and uh, it's the authenticity and it's the credibility of a manager who convince the market to say, yes, this is what I know, this is what I don't know. And if what I don't know, I will try to manage in, in, that, in that way. And that is exactly the way on how uh, companies, uh, managers should position themselves aside from the fact that they may have a good product. If I can just build build on that, remember that managers have that impact not only when they're talking to investors, but when they're talking to employees or talking to the press or whatever. You you can't be a, a sort of sage and serious when you're talking to investors if they can see you um, you know on TV or in the newspaper sounding like an idiot. So all part of authenticity is being the same and being consistent across all the channels that you talk to people in. And uh, Carl, quick question for you. You know, there's just a wealth of information out there right now, both information and misinformation. How do you keep the message or how did you keep the message to your investors consistent given all these different myriad sources that people could call on? Yeah, I mean, when you address the the, um, the market, what I've experienced, you have on the one side the super educated, super knowledgeable um, investors. They can go deep and they have a, a, a super, uh, let's say, a knowledge base, a scientific knowledge base. And this is frightening to a certain extent because they come from the Harvards and the Stanfords and they then go to the investment banking or the investment field and they know exactly uh, everything about the products. But this is not only uh, the specialists, which usually work for these large funds, so let's say the 50, 60, 100 billion funds, but you also have the generalists in the market, yeah? And the generalists maybe has to, the, to invest in the morning in a, in a, in a, in a company in, in, in healthcare and the afternoon in fast-moving consumer goods and so on. They cannot be specialists. And you have to find a way to, uh, to appeal your story to both, to the specialists as well as to the generalists. Uh, because both have money, both should invest and want to invest in your company. And the best way to do it is absolutely to keep the messaging super simple and crisp. I mean, as soon as the slides start to 
to get full, you know, and and one message after the next. And did I forget this one? And shouldn't I mention the, the other one? That people get lost. I mean, they want to see the consistency behind it, and the consistency you can mirror and follow up, follow up only when you have a clear and and easy to understand uh, things. So I would say maybe that is the biggest mistake which many companies do is they just try to put too much messages out, too complicated, and then they just get lost in this in this market uh, and they do the wrong thing for the right uh, for the right intention. Well, thanks for reminding us about the importance of focus, Carl. How should companies then go about understanding what information about them is out there and how it might impact or cloud their investor story? Werner? Well, I, I, I would, so the simple answer is we need to, or corporations need to look at this all the time nowadays. We used to only do sort of competitive information and now it's way more than that. I would also say that it probably is going to get easier on that. I mean, we are experimenting like everybody else with uh, generative AI to sort of feed information and sort of have a daily uh, news flash, if you want, that's a bit more condensed than just 15 pages from somebody and, and a news feed, right? It's not there yet. Um, I'm 100% convinced that these services will come and they will probably be commoditized because it's commoditized information. My best advice would be to just watch that space to catch things early. My biggest worry, I would say, is that we overreact to small news. Um, that really doesn't matter. Uh, so again, staying the course, having the consistent messaging. Indeed. But sometimes having a really bad quarter could actually lead to a change in intrinsic investors' value thesis. And that might even spur on a sell-off. How do you help balance this notion of uh, you know, a bad quarter versus having it just be a blip versus something that's actually changing the fundamentals in the eyes of the intrinsics. No, look, the, every company will occasionally fail their numbers. That's just reality. And we know from history uh, that, you know, companies that make their numbers every quarter to the cent raise suspicion. Because every single company that made their numbers to the send in every quarter over a long time frame had issues and how they did this. And it also matters how you miss, right? If you miss because of a one-time thing that can easily be explained by some, you know, let's say tax settlement or whatever, it really doesn't matter that much. If you miss because you have a fundamental volume problem that is likely to continue, that that will matter. So it's not a simple very often when you find that sort of these things happen, uh, it has to do with much with additional news. Maybe, you know, sometimes the share price actually did not go down because of the EPS mess. It went go down because of M&A news that was not well received, for instance. So, by the way, there are plenty of events where EPS went down and share price went up, right? So when you, when you double click on these events, it's really important to understand whether or not this is a long-term signal, right? For example, we saw all these virtual learning companies when the, you know, when COVID started to end, they suddenly the numbers dropped significantly. And that was a long-term signal that it's not be as sticky as what was priced in. That makes complete sense, right? So what one way we think companies can be effective in this is not to be on the quarterly guidance treadmill. That's a, that's a very challenging road for companies and it makes it particularly difficult when companies don't meet or exceed their numbers. So one way to, to address this is instead to provide 
long-term aspirational targets, not, not even guides. I'm not, I'm not talking EPS guidance or even a range for next year or the year out. It, it can be more around your key performance indicators in terms of top line or sales growth, your margin, your customer growth, your return on invested capital or return on equity, your expectations in terms of uh, capital deployment, whether you're using that to reinvest in the business for support growth, for M&A, or it, without other options, returning it to shareholders in the form of dividends and buybacks. So even if a company doesn't, doesn't meet or exceed street expectations for a given quarter, and there's a sell-off related to that, that's going to be a buying opportunity typically for the intrinsically oriented investors. As long as the company can keep marching towards achieving its long-term aspirations, that's where the focus should be. And that'll also help draw in your, your long-term intrinsic, even if that means some interim noise from trading oriented investors. Yeah, I think it's uh, that is super important what Jay and, and Werner said. It's uh, always the question about uh, the company's uh, medium-term outlook or long-term outlook. I mean, as long as you can convince the uh, investors uh, that you're still on the right track uh, to achieve certain things which you are committed to, uh, a quarter is not an issue. The quarter may become, and, and here Werner uh, alluded to it in, in UJ as well, the problem starts if uh, the messaging before was uh, pointing into the wrong direction and uh, people are constantly, let's say, uh, uh, over-promising on certain things, then the problem starts uh, to, uh, to hurt because then the investors are no longer sure what the next quarter will bring. But as the, if this is not, let's say, overshadowing the, the, the main course you're on, and as long as you can convince the investors that your long-term path is intact and you are behind it as a management in all transparency and as entity, I would say uh, the short-term blips are what they are. And every company has it. That's uh, Werner is absolutely right. Uh, this is uh, life, I would like to say. Huh? It's a living organism, uh, uh, organism of um, of uh, and we have to live with it uh, with the appointments with the uh, disappointments but also with uh, with the achievements yeah if i mean it comes back to the very first thing that we talked about which is the role of investor relations is to align market value with intrinsic value if you overhype this if you try to maximize the share price it will come back to you likely in the form of a missed quarter because at some point you will miss your volume or your your revenue or some sort of top line estimate, right? If you made sure that people really understand the company and what you are and how you are and what's driving it, as as Carl said, one quarter is is not going to matter. That's great. Thank you. Um, so now let's move to how you act on the insights you've shared so far. How do you practically frame a strategy story or an equity story for your intrinsic investors? There's many ways to do this. I, I personally have to admit, I find that that people often overcomplicate this. If you have a good strategy, it should be fairly easy to tell the strategic story, which starts from, you know, what's the market opportunity? What do customers want, right? And what do investors need to understand about this, right? For instance, in my market, we are moving towards some net zero products or some sustainable products or similar. Customers are willing to pay a premium. That's an opportunity. We want to capture that opportunity, right? So what is the strategy to capture that? How do you create value given that context should be next, right? What are your sustainable competitive advantages? Why you 
as a company, basically, is the question here, right? And that could lead to things like our strategies to have high price and start in, uh, you know, niche products like we saw with some of the EV sort of strategies that started the upper end. Or it could be we see an opportunity here for a value product and that's what we are going to address and therefore we see high growth because the segment is growing, right? And then next, what's the roadmap against this? We will need to invest, we will need to build out our sales force in Asia, we will need to reshuffle our uh, resources, assets, capital deployment, etc. And, you know, what's the impact of that, you know, in broad strokes, not next quarter, because we're talking strategy, right? But we think this will be an industry where we can make 15% return on capital or 25% return on capital. We think this is over the long term grow grow faster than population plus inflation. And here's why, right? So here's the market. Here's what creates value in the market. Here's how we're going to go about it. Here's the impact and, and maybe risks that we see. It's lovely if you can already show some evidence. So this is not easy. There's some markets where you can't do it. But in especially things like uh, consumer goods, um, if you have test markets, uh, I saw some examples in insurance companies where they said we tested our digital strategy in a small country and got higher retention rates. You know, any kind of evidence that shows we can actually do this is is lovely, incredible. And, and should always be there as you have these conversations about the, the strategy. Um, and by the way, sometimes it is the evidence that makes you correct things, right? We saw higher retention rates, not as fast as we want. Therefore, here's what we're going to correct. Perfectly fine to do that, right? And then there's things like the management team, why this, maybe around compensation. How is compensation aligned with your long-term strategy and so on? So now... You might have to do that several times if you have three segments, hardware, software, services, or, or, or similar, right? They might or might not be related, and then sort of gets a little bit, you know, complex in how you tell it. But it should always have a top-down structure, sort of after the introduction of the company, if you want, right? And who you are, uh, of of what you go after in the strategic component of this. One, one thing that's interesting about that that I've, I've seen over time is many companies don't start with a market opportunity. They go right into value creation plan or specifics about the company. And I recall when, when I was an equity analyst, I'd spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about the industry uh, in terms of growth potential, profit opportunity, opportunity for share shifts and and how companies would, would, would uh, would improve their standing with customers. It, it's something that's something that's sometimes overlooked by companies that go right into uh, essentially just about their story and their value creation. And so it it it, it can be a uh, a very impactful and important starting point. So in your experience, where has sustainability and ESG started to fit into this investor story? And what do intrinsic investors want to know about how companies are approaching these issues? Um, we, we, you know, investor survey, these are, uh, chief investment officers of companies that have long-term, uh, equity only holdings. So, you know, intrinsic investors. So we ask us, you know, how, what's your most common thing about ESG and all this? And it's systematically about, you know, how do these initiatives, uh, drive cash flows in the future, 
right? This is sort of the most common approach in thinking about it. It's not about, you know, does this company have actions? It's about what's the impact of these actions. And then at the same time, the same investors sort of lack a little bit right now, if you want, the point of view on what are the measures to sort of measure this long-term value of the ESG investments. So there is a real need, quite frankly, for investor relations to translate the actions that we see in ESG reports or sustainability reports and what does it mean for the strategy. And if you go back to what we just said, it's, you know, market opportunity first, you know, the portfolio is shifting, the customer demand is shifting. Maybe market, I would include things like regulatory issues. We see the regulatory shifting in a certain way. Therefore, here's our strategy. So ESG, in the end, uh, has to move from uh, announcement of the actions to really what does it mean. And by the way, it could mean that we continue to have a business in 20 years, right? There are certain areas when you, when you think about EVs, you know, cars, if you don't have electric vehicles in your portfolio in 15 years, you're not a car company anymore, probably. Thank you, Warner. Uh, you know, the aspect that we touched on briefly, but I'd like to now dive into is how do you align the story you share with investors with what you share internally with um, employees and, and, and shaping employee perceptions? David, I, I know you've had some experience with that. Maybe you could uh, start us off. Thanks. I mean, it, it, it used to be, it, it should be clear to everybody that investor relations dialogues don't take place in a vacuum. That wasn't always the case. So we used to have a model where the IR department talks to investors and procurement talks to suppliers, HR or internal comms talks to employees, PR talks to the public, marketing talks to customers, government affairs talks to regulators. And we had a model that those were all separate bilateral conversations. If that was ever true, it certainly isn't now. What we've seen with context collapse is that any conversation that's had with any group is at least theoretically public to every single group. You can't say something to customers, for example, and not expect investors to hear it. So you can see examples of transformations or job cuts or strategic pivots, and employees start discussing this in a public forum, and it's immediately public everywhere. Customers start, you know, consider boycotts, investors are wary not because of necessarily the cuts but because the way it's been handled makes management look incompetent it can also come the other way right so you have uh, companies that have a dialogue with investors about their esg plans but that also becomes public because ngos hear about it other people hear about it again you face customer boycotts and again for example future employees the talent that you want to attract is suddenly scared off the uh, the company by that. So context collapse is real and it's really important. What can you do about it? The first thing is to really be in analyzing what what your investors are have already heard. In other words, you can't just pretend that the other, other conversations they're overhearing aren't happening. You need to know what they're saying. Second, as Werner said, it's a single story approach. You need to be telling the same story to all these audiences because they will hear what you tell other people. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't tailor your story to what people are particularly interested in, uh, but it does. the story needs to be overall consistent and coherent. And the way you do that is by having some coherent structure and governance 
by having somebody at your company owning that one story, that single story. So because if sort of all these people, you know, um, public affairs, um, HR, your recruitment people for future employees are all off telling telling a different story, the risk of that is happening is much greater if those groups never talk to each other. It makes a lot of sense. And so what are the implications of what you just shared for how the investor relations team needs to engage with other departments in their organization? And in your experience, what's the most effective uh, place for them to report to? So let me take the IR side, David, and then you can see how, because traditionally investor relations has always been or typically been under CFO and CEO if there was not a regulatory context that required something else. So you would find, I mean, the biggest danger in the past was the conflict between regulatory message and investor relations, quite frankly. And it didn't matter or it doesn't matter whether it's a CEO or CFO, because you have to have a good working relationship with both. It probably always will be like that. Let me just put it that way, because part of the role of CEO and CI and, and, and CFO is the investor relations part and talking to them and having that direct line because you kind of want that as an executive, I would suspect. The question is sort of almost the connection with others. And I think it's less about who we report to in the structure than more about that communication between different teams. So as as Werner says, it's not necessarily about where the solid lines are, but it's really important that the dotted lines are as solid as as, as you can make them. If, if, If there's one action that you could all take tomorrow morning, it would be to ask your IR people if you're not well connected with those other audiences, with internal comms, with PR, with recruitment, with procurement, with marketing, get a meeting together, work out and agree what your single story is and how you're going to have a regular cadence of meetings that keeps you all connected with each other. Because if you don't do that, one of those communication channels is going to get blindsided by something that happens in another of them. Thank you, David. In, in large companies with many divisions and businesses, is there ever a risk of the story becoming too complicated? And Jay, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. I think the structuring element of how a company's business units are presented to a to the investor base is is really critical, and that's for a few reasons. First, it would help investors to understand the economics of each business unit and how that rolls up to the overall results. So that's the first point. Second, in terms of how investors would investigate or or take about their due diligence on the company, it helps structure it from that perspective. It's even better if that aligns with how the, how the company manages the business, because then you can have specific questions or issues directed towards those executives. And third, from a sum of the parts standpoint, in terms of how investors think about this, being able to value individual business units separately based on growth, margin, turn profile, and sources of uses of cash is critical to how investors would approach this as well. And again, as it bubbles up to the overall story. Carl, what's your experience been on this? Yeah, I mean, in the end, uh, an investor will only invest in something he understands from as we all do. I mean, we want to understand what is behind and then we basically go for it. Um, And the more business units you have, the more complex it's getting. Because, I mean, the investor has the choice either to go into mono um, uh, investments, so there is really a pure play farmer, or they go into a 
conglomerate into a mix because they feel that this is exactly appropriate for them to invest in because of risk profile, of uh, risk diversity, uh, and so on. So the business is what the business is, but in the end, you have to, uh, uh, back to what Jay said, you have to explain in easy, as easy as possible ways, the business fundamentals, that the people understand it, and then you have to take it from there. Given how important this is and all the great perspectives you've now shared, how much time should the executive team, and specifically the CEO and CFO, be spending with these intrinsic investors on their investor relations? Is it a day? Is it a week? How do you think about this if you're trying to really up your game on your investor relations? So when we think about how much time CEO and CFO should be spending on investor relations aspects and investor outreach in particular, in total, we're thinking on the order of 10 to 15% of their calendar. Uh, and that's not just for intrinsic investors, because if you take into account everything in terms of um, investor outreach, whether that be uh, organically, the company doing itself, or um, for, at investor conferences or hosting their investor day, um, it, it, before long, it can take up an inordinate amount of their schedule. So it's, it, that's why it's, it's, it's critically important for the, the C-suite to focus their time on the investors that matter most. So we would, we would absolutely over-index on focusing that time on the intrinsic investors. And you know, related to that, if there's, say, one or two standout sell-side equity analysts that, ha- that are intrinsically oriented about your business, Spending time with them as well, of course, taking into account everything in terms of Reg FD and the like, um, that that could be helpful in terms of getting the messaging out as well. I mean, uh, you have to get into the calendar of of the of the top management a year ahead. I have to say, uh, because they don't have uh, lots of uh, time availability, so it's a question of planning. So this is the first one, and the second one is really every quarter. I mean, you have to you have to have a regular contact. You need to talk to these people, uh, not only when you have an issue. You need to talk to these people when you have no issue. Yeah, they want to have a regular update, and I would say maybe that's the whole secret: huh? regular, regular contact. Fantastic, Jay, Carl, David, Warner. Thank you all so much for taking the time with us today. We really appreciate it, and thank you to all of our listeners who joined us today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast. Just email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everybody who's already done so. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback. Please do keep them coming. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to subscribe, you can just follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. And that's where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. And that's where you can also easily search prior podcasts across six themes and access written transcripts of all of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, just sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF for strategy and corporate finance. Follow us on X or Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.